Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Brian Burnsed, an associate editor with Champion, filling in for Jack Ford for a special episode today. NCAA.com reporter Andy Katz recently sat down with NCAA President Mark Emmert, University of Minnesota President Eric Kaler, and Stanford Director of Athletics Bernard Meir for an in-depth discussion about key issues facing college basketball amid the FBI's ongoing probe and what changes may soon be in store for the sport. It proved to be an interesting, substantive conversation and one we wanted to share with all of you. Hope you enjoy, and Jack will be back next week. Welcome to State of the Game, College Basketball. I'm Andy Katz, along with NCAA President Mark Emmert, Dr. Eric Kaler, the President of the University of Minnesota and the Chairman of the Division I Board of Directors, and Stanford Athletic Director Bernard Muir. All right, so I want to get into a number of topics here. Let's first deal with the FBI investigation. Um, Dr. Emmert, when did you find out about the FBI investigation? Well, at the same time, uh, everybody did. We, we learned about it from media reports. We hadn't had any previous contact from the Southern District of New York or from the FBI. So uh, they do their work in private. We have to respect the boundaries of that, of that work. And uh, we're informed in large part the same way everybody else is. But, so what was your gut reaction? Well, look, we, we all have heard rumors swirling around about that kind of behavior for years and years. And, and uh, you know, everybody suspected there were things like that going on. But nobody in the NCAA or in any of our universities has subpoena power or has the ability to conduct sting operations or can do wiretaps. So this was the first time there'd been that kind of broad-based evidence uh, showing this sort of behavior. So I mean, it was obviously very disturbing. It, it was pretty gut-wrenching for a lot of people to see and read uh, transcripts of, of wiretaps about people cheating in college sports. As a university president, when you first heard, what did you think? I was profoundly disappointed uh, off-put. Uh, this, this is not who we want to be as part of college athletics. And to see the char charges of uh, dishonesty, of corruption, of bribery, uh, it's, really, it's really disheartening and, and very, very disappointing. And so that is one reason why we've uh, brought together the Condoleezza Rice Commission. We'll talk about that and uh, are eager to act on the recommendations that she's going to bring forward uh, to help us uh, police our business. You're more at the ground level. Yeah. Um, you played basketball at Brown. You've worked various levels in administrations. Now as an athletic director at one arguably the most successful you know, school, both academically and on the athletic field in terms of winning the College Cup. When you heard this, what did you think? Well, I think like uh, Dr. Emmert said, uh, we always heard rumors. We, we would be concerned about what was going on in the game, but it certainly it gave us a chance to pause and go, okay, what are we doing here? And let's really look at the, the, the landscape and how can we clean this up as quickly as possible? Uh, because it is a stain to a game that is really beautiful to watch. Uh, and the young people that play it, we want to give them the best opportunity possible. So to hear this type of thing going on in the game itself gives us pause and concern and, and we want to hopefully eradicate it as quickly as possible. So you were on the selection committee. You were in that room this past week in New York City. You're one of the 10 people there. Uh, at, at any juncture, did this FBI investigation come up in any way about any of the teams that could have gotten in? Not at all. We never talked about it one bit. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at teams available and what they've done. That's the bottom line. So this type of conversation never came up in the selection process. Dr. Armand, if there's a perception that had been going on of unethical, maybe even illegal behavior, um, why did it take the FBI to uncover it rather than 
you know, the traditional NCA enforcement? Yeah, well, first of all, the traditional enforcement model does, in fact, uncover these things, but it's much more episodic rather than systemic like the FBI can. Because the Southern District in New York decided to conduct this investigation, they could bring all of the tools that a federal investigatory body can, and that includes the ability to run sting operations, to do wiretaps, to uh, subpoena information, to, to force witnesses to testify that, that a uh, non-governmental body could never, ever do. So uh, while we get at these things uh, as one-offs when they come up and we can get the information and we can get universities to participate in those investigations, it's way different than what uh, the FBI can do, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So the Committee on Infractions, I think there's this perception out there that it's you, that it's your staff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what people don't do is they don't read all the way down to that press release and see who's actually making these decisions. Um, who is making the decisions when there's an infractions case? Well, there is an infractions committee of the NCAA. It's appointed by, uh, by the leadership of the NCAA. It's composed of people from a wide range of backgrounds, can include outside attorneys, former athletic directors, faculty representatives, professors of law, uh, people with a broad perspective. Uh, they deliberate very, very carefully. They take this, this obligation to uh, judge on infractions uh, very seriously. They make that, uh, that decision. Uh, there's an appeal process. There's a due process that institutions can go through. Uh, but the evidence that we're able to get is weighed very carefully by a knowledgeable group of individuals. Bernard, here's what I understand. When there's an infractions case and a school is upset about the decision, they just consistently say, they, the NCAA made this, how do you educate the membership that it's not Indianapolis, right. it's actually your own colleagues that are making this decision? Now we have to talk to our public, uh, our community, our constituency to, to, to that fact, saying this is not the folks in Indianapolis. This is a membership-driven organization, and it's us. Collectively, we're all in this together. We're policing ourselves, so to speak. And sometimes we're, we don't agree with the decision, but we also know that we're, we're talking to ourselves, if you, if you will. And, uh, you know, that's part of being in a, a membership-driven uh, uh, organization. Dr. Keller, how often have you heard from other presidents or athletic directors in, that don't get it about who actually is making these decisions? Well, I think the knowledge of how the NCAA is run is, uh, is not very widely distributed. Uh, it's a membership organization. We have uh, 1,100 schools uh, involved. We're organized into three divisions. We have almost half a million student athletes. It's a big distributed organization. People tend to want to personalize uh, most bad things in life, and unfortunately for Mark, some of those decisions <laughs> get personalized to, uh, to the NCAA uh, president. But uh, I would say how the organization runs uh, is not uh, as well understood as it should be, and that leads to people making some uh, misguided and, uh, decisions and holding some misconceptions. I think also the misperception is that rule book is thick. I mean, it's right. 400 pages plus and growing. Um, but we, we charged, we're charged to make sure, hey, these are the rules we put in place to govern ourselves, uh, and that's really the discussion that happens among our members. And then we enact these rules and say, you know what, we think this should be put in the manual and this is what we're going to live by. But that again is our members deciding that, not somebody in Indianapolis. And you know, the, the rule book itself is dynamic. We've made enormous amounts of change uh, for the good of the student athlete and for the good of the game uh, over the past several years, uh, significant changes and uh, those will continue. Uh, we strive to get better. So to this point with the committee led by Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, um, what are the chances that a recommendation could be take it completely out of the membership, that it's a third party that actually makes these decisions. 
<clears throat> well, which decisions do you mean in terms of in enforcement? In terms of enforcement or, you oh, know, okay. and infractions to, so that there's no perception of if you have you know, a commissioner from one conference ruling on a case from another conference who could end up being a rival. Yeah, you know. yeah, sure. And we do hear that a lot. You know, people that do understand that the decisions in, in infractions are made by essentially a jury of your peers, then, then you get questions about, well, how, how independent was that group? And having watched them for seven years now, it's incredibly independent, but the perceptions are still there. So I think in answer to your question, uh, the vast majority of the cases that go through the Committee on Infractions, go through that regular process, work really, really well. They never become controversial. They're pretty straightforward. The school, the university or college cooperates with my investigatory team. They work directly with the Committee on Infractions. It all functions pretty darn well. Where it becomes problematic and, and an area where I anticipate the Rice Commission to spend a lot of their time is, is in a small number of cases that are really high profile, right? The ones that wind up in the media and, and, and where instead of having a cooperative approach between the school and my staff uh, trying to find facts, it becomes highly antagonistic. It becomes much more like a courtroom setting. And in those cases, I, I think and I hope um, that they're going to bring forward some recommendations that we consider some completely different models around those again, those really contentious cases, because I do think it does color people's perceptions that, oh, that's the NCAA. They're making those decisions because of money or something else, which is utterly untrue, but we need to have a system that, that people have greater confidence in. So when this report came out from Yahoo and then the one that was on ESPN, why did it work so quickly to clear these student athletes for competition over basically a 24 hour period when there are other times when it can take you know weeks and months before something like that occurs the ones that were the cases that were cleared were were pretty straightforward ones and people people were surprised uh, that gosh um, somebody allegedly had a dinner with an agent for fifty dollars or whatever it was and and my staff who reviews those things said, well, that's a de minimis issue, we don't care. They do that day in, day out. There's nothing unusual about that. That wasn't a- It was just all at once. It was just all at once. And you had three or four cases come in all at once. Uh, they were, again, they were all pretty straightforward, de minimis questions. Uh, if those cases had come in in the middle of the season, they would have been handled almost identically. Yeah, some people worked on a Saturday because they were going into some conference tournaments, but if in a, under normal processes, they might have waited till Monday. But it, it, those weren't handled in any unusual way. How much power do you have to actually really affect change? Well, I think I, I have uh, the, the ability to provide leadership to the, to the decision-making bodies, the presidents and, and the council that, that the athletic directors sit on, and, and keep them focused on the real issues and the real questions that need to be resolved. And use the bully pulpit, if you will, to, to keep focused on the fact that this is about higher education as much as it is about sports. Make sure that people stay focused on what's working for student athletes. Uh, and, then, and then steer them in, in, in directions uh, to finding the, the right answers. There's a big misperception. He's not Roger Goodell. He's not Adam Silver. Okay, <laughs> this is not the way it works. Um, so, with that being said, there's all you know a czar of a sport. How much power should one individual have to control a sport? I think that would be very difficult in our membership-driven mm -hmm. organization. Uh, you know, I, I think we, our conferences want the power, our schools want power. So to put all this uh, uh, responsibility on one person. We have 351 institutions playing college basketball, and to have one person be involved with the, the entire game, 
I think it would be a different, different shift in our, in our current model. Well, I mean, first of all, the conference commissioners yeah. from right. the Power Five control college football, not Indianapolis. I mean, they're the ones that are making the decision right. on that, and that's another big misperception. So with that being said, beyond running championships, um, you know, administrating the rules of the game, um, what should the role of the NCAA be in college sports? Well, we have several important overarching things that, uh, that the NCAA does. Uh, controlling eligibility, making a judgment about a, an amateur athlete's eligibility is important. Uh, you mentioned championships. It's important to understand that 90% of the revenue that the NCAA generates, which is primarily from the men's basketball tournament, uh, flows back to the membership schools. We wouldn't have athletics at the scale we have in D Division Three or Division Two, except for the NCAA distributions. In the Power Five conferences, uh, the NCAA distribution is a significant part of the funding that supports the Olympic sports, the non-revenue sports. Uh, those are sports that are providing opportunities for hundreds of thousands of students. It's really important that the NCAA exist as a way to organize uh, the, the support of amateur college athletics in this country. So let me play devil's advocate and say, you know, why should Minnesota support Williams? You know, why should uh, Stanford help out UC Davis uh, in any way? What's your response to that? I, I think we want competition. We, that's what we're celebrating here and the, the thousands and thousands of young people that get a chance to have a platform to compete, we need UC Davis. We need these other schools to, to really come together and compete. If it was just isolated to a small group, I think it diminishes the overall experience for our young people. And, and I think, Andy, it's, it's also, again, really important that we remember this is about college students playing college students. As, as uh, Dr. Kaler said, we, we have nearly half a million young men and women playing NCAA sports. This year, there'll be about three, Point three or $3.5 billion of scholarship money, direct scholarship money directed to all of those students through these universities because of their support of, of athletic programs. It's one of the biggest supporters of, of students in, in the classroom uh, as well as on the courts it, of anything that happens in America. And, and that's enabled by the NCAA and its participation with all 1,100 of those schools. So I thought the best game of the year okay, was St. Bonaventure versus Davidson. Triple overtime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I wasn't there in Olean, but it was yeah. packed. Yeah. It came across that way on television, and there wasn't one player on that court that has anything to do with any of this, Right. okay? Right. Um, neither school, anything like that. So with that being said, how do you change the narrative where everyone, because I've heard this from coaches and athletes, gets smeared by the few? I think now in the next few weeks here that will un will unfold, you'll hear great stories. They're the individuals that are getting to compete in this championship, it's those unique stories that will be told, and that's where the focus should be. Um, you know, when young people get to do their craft and do it well, uh, especially on a national stage, that is what this is all about. And so hopefully that narrative continues to be told as opposed to what we've been talking about earlier on. All right, so things have changed. Okay, yeah. so first of all, this Olympic model, um, how would you apply an Olympic model to college athletics? Well, it's not in clear at all, you know. So the, the Olympic model 
has so many differences from what we do in college sports. So first of all, it's easy to forget that the vast majority of Olympians are in fact professional athletes. They're not collegiate athletes. Stanford sends a lot to the Olympics. When I was president of Washington, we sent a lot. But, but most of them are in fact professionals already. Um, secondly, there's no recruitment issues in the Olympics. You know, the Russians aren't over here recruiting away our swimmers or vice versa. In college sports, you've got 19,000 teams, schools competing with each other to attract one athlete versus another. That, that's a very different model than the Olympic model. And, and then the, the Olympic Olympians do, in fact, get to uh, go after endorsement deals during the Olympics, but only of the corporate partners of the, of the Olympics. There are elements of that people think we should look at. I think we need to take a long, hard look at what parts of that could be applicable and which parts couldn't. Uh, I don't know whether or not any of that applies, Andy, to college sports, but it is a conversation that needs to occur, and I think the Rice Commission will be talking about that. So how, how does a college basketball player or college football player um, market himself? Well, I, you just went through the seeding of the, the tournament. Uh, if you're a college basketball player with professional aspirations, w whether it's in basketball or just whatever your profession is going to be, I can't think of a better marketing device than playing in the NCAA tournament. I mean, you, you are going to personally be talking about uh, 100 or so basketball players for the next two, three weeks on a national stage, literally that the whole world watches. Uh, that's a pretty powerful marketing tool. And, and some of the household names in, in American sports are because of their success playing in the men's basketball tournament or in a college football playoff championship. So in terms of promoting and marketing yourself and building that reputation to launch your professional career, I think that's probably the greatest opportunity available. And I think a great example of that is Kevin Durant. So he comes out and it was widely reported at the time he couldn't lift whatever it was at the combine. Right. You know, so yes, highly recruited ends up from Maryland to Texas. There's no way he's the number two pick if he goes straight out of high school. He benefits from a year at Texas and you know, obviously made millions of dollars off of that experience and that exposure of being you know, national player of the year in terms of you know, the kind of year he had in that one season at Texas. But I want to get back to um, basically if there was this free market, okay, so we take a game between you know, Stanford and USC and you know, I'm trying to envision on the court what would happen, you're a Nike school and I'm playing for Stanford, but you know what? Adidas wants me with sneakers, maybe some gear. <laughs> right. And now Powerade comes after me, even though you've got Gatorade on the bench. How would that work? I think it wouldn't. I think it'd be sheer chaos. Right. Um, because right now what uh, Nike provides a Stanford allows me to outfit our entire 900 student athletes in 36 sports. Uh, now if all of a sudden we had these side deals and separate deals where all 900 athletes could go get their own deal, some might go without. And mm -hmm. so they'll look to me saying, where is my gear, where's my equipment to compete? Well, we leave it up to the students to go and How much it. would that cost if, if you at Stanford, yeah. your athletic department, had to pay instead of Nike giving it to you? That's millions of dollars. There's a seven-figure commitment here that we're, that we're going through. Now, Nike wouldn't want me to give you the exact terms right, of the right, deal. Right. But, but at the same token, that's, we're putting millions of dollars into outfitting our student-athletes so and, they can compete. And so if Minnesota didn't have a deal, where would that money come from if you had to outfit? We'd have to bring it out of some other revenue source, and ultimately perhaps tuition or state appropriation, which is a bridge that we don't 
really ever want to cross. It's not, it's not the right direction. But Andy, let me go back a little bit to the, the marketing and the benefit that, that these student athletes get. Uh, it's enormous. These student athletes now get the full cost of attendance. They get very good training. They get wonderful food. They get lodging. They get a wonderful world-class education at one of our schools. And they graduate from college debt-free. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, no Kansas or Kentucky player is walking in in August with a fridge and a TV into their dorm room. So they've got the <laughs> finest housing on campus. You know, their life, obviously, while they're at school is great. And I've had many seniors tell me that, that their experience during that time. So you played at Brown many moons ago. I don't want to date you here, but um, how have the benefits changed for student athletes in terms of Pell Grants, cost of attendance, food, travel, medical care, facilities? What has changed over the last, whether it's Two years, five years, ten years. I would say in the last five years alone, uh, there's we used to say there's arms race just in facilities. We'd all try to build the best and and, and greatest facilities for our student athletes <laughs> to compete in. We're still doing that, but that arms race is now going even further. Food we talk about. What we're investing in food, pretty much kids are being able to get food 24/7, which they should. But we're providing it. The expense that we are we we get from derived from this championship that flows back into our institutions is to, to enhance the student athlete experience. You could argue, which some do, hey, we're, we're paying uh, quite a bit in compensation for the leadership of those programs, which we are, but we're also trying to provide our student athletes with the best experience possible. And all the things that Dr. Kaler just mentioned, those are things that we're, we're taking those resources and putting it into to their experience. And so, now, and, and if I could, I, I, Bernard said something really important. So over the past, five years or so, we've seen a really important, and I think something we should be proud of actually, shift in the way schools compete to attract and, and recruit young men and young women to their programs. It used to always be around facilities. Right. Who could have the biggest this or the biggest that? They still compete over facilities, but they're also competing now over who can treat the students the best. Who can give them the best nutrition? Who can give them the best academic support? Who can give them the best opportunities for travel and the way they travel? Who can give them the best medical care? And that's a great change. And, and I think that if you look at the experience of a freshman entering six years ago versus a freshman entering today, it's a very, very different world. And that's a good thing. It's expensive, but right. that's okay. It's, it's the right place to be spending money. Yeah, I mean, Robbie Hummel, who had a great career at Purdue, and now a broadcaster, he told me when he tore his knee, Purdue flew him to New York, great medical care, surgery there, put him up in a hotel for four nights, and that surgery will help him the rest of his life. Nothing against Indiana doctors or anything, but he had great care. Bernard, uh, USA Today reported that I think 47 coaches make more than $2 million a year. So the easy uh, converse to that is, whoa, you know, the crazy salaries here. Why shouldn't the players just get a little, little piece of that? I, I think they do. I think what we, mm -hmm. we're talking about in terms of uh, you know, providing a scholarship. I know out of my place, if you look at four-year period, that's over $200,000 a year. Now we talk about travel and lodging and food, uh, cost of attendance. That number continues to creep. So you could say our student-athletes are benefiting well over six figures over the course of a four-year, sometimes five-year mm -hmm. period, and that adds up. You think about, like we were talking about, 351 institutions playing college basketball, 15 on a team. You do start doing the math, and you're going, okay, this is a significant investment that we're making, and they're leaving debt-free. We're kind of forgetting about the female athletes here. <laughs> Title IX, 
help those understand all this talk about got to pay the males, got to pay the males. What happens to the women? Well, I think, again, you got to remember this is in the context of higher education. It's an, these are educational universities and colleges that are conducting these games, and you have to abide by the educational laws of the United States. You've got to provide women with the same opportunities and support that men receive. If you were going to pay salaries to male um, athletes, you'd have to do the same thing for female athletes, and, and you'd have to come up with some explanation to the federal government as to why you would possibly not do it for one group versus another, and I, I think that's completely untenable. I think the other issue is that if you were going to move into a model where you were just paying football and basketball athletes, that's the argument that always comes forward, uh, the, the way athletic departments are going to do that is they're going to eliminate other sports. And there's, there's really no other way for them to do it. Yeah, if you just looked at the revenue from football, you might be able to figure out how to pay football players, but you would eliminate all the other mm -hmm. sports that are out there in order to do that and take away opportunities from men and women uh, as well. It, it, it simply doesn't, those kinds of things simply don't fit in the context of a university. Yeah, so, so all those that like to criticize on this, you actually sit in that chair you have to budget your athletic department. Right. What would happen to your softball program, and maybe people don't care, I don't know, but I'm just saying, what would happen to that softball program, to your crew or whatever else, you, you know, yeah. I know you've got tons of them at <laughs> right. Stanford, right. Uh, if you had to pay your football and basketball players? It, we would have to whittle down the list. We have 36 sports, uh, many of the sports you've just mentioned, that we would have to kind of concentrate to a small number in order to, uh, to pay student athletes. That would be unfortunate because our, the reason why we recruit and say come to Stanford is we want to provide you an excellent experience regardless of the sport and we have 36 to choose from. Now we'd have to have lesser offerings. Alright, so what's realistic in this model here? Um, what do you think could actually happen in terms of the student athletes getting a little bit more, the naming rights, anything that you think could actually occur from this commission? Well, first of all, I hope that the commission uh, comes out with recommendations that encourage some changes in, in the professional landscape. Obviously, the one and done rule is an NBA, um, NBA Players Association contractual rule. But, you know, many of us have been saying, and um, I think my colleagues agree, that, that young men ought to have professional options. If, if you don't want to go to college and you want to become a professional basketball player, there ought to be opportunities to do that. And there are some now. You can go to the G League now. You can go to Europe now. Um, those are not particularly attractive options for a lot of people. But I hope, first of all, that students get, young people get choice. If they don't want to go to college, they, they really should have an option to not do that. If you want to go to college and you want to become a better basketball player, you want to become a professional athlete, then Bernard's got a great deal for you. Minnesota's got a great deal for you. And you can go there and you can develop those skills and abilities. We need to keep focused on making sure that we're providing those student athletes with everything that they possibly need as student athletes. The rules have been changed over the past five years to give them um, increased benefits. Uh, every place we can continue to do that, we ought to do it. There needs to be a discussion about whether or not uh, any kind of uh, endorsement deals could be considered. You've heard some of the problems with doing that, but that doesn't mean the commission shouldn't debate it and discuss it. But once you move over the line and say, okay, we're now gonna pay you to play, you've now turned that into a professional athlete. I mean, that's 
the fundamental problem here. You're no longer primarily a student athlete. You're now a professional athlete. That becomes very problematic. Uh, but inside being a student, we need to give them everything they possibly can use and enjoy as a student athlete. I'd only add to that is that I wish we could, and I know we're hopefully the Rice Commission and others will look at this, provide better advice to those small numbers Absolutely. of student athletes okay. that are in a position to go professional. And so they can get really good advice and decide, okay, is this the right thing for me? We, we could probably work on our rules to allow that to happen. I know it happens in baseball and hockey, and this is a sport that really needs attention because there are kids who need counseling to decide, am I making the right choice at the right moment? for me to go to that next level. So, so the crux of this though, excuse me, is, is the agent issue. Right. And yeah. that's why all this came out, because it was agent-related activities. Right. Uh, we have seen some change in that, where you can actually meet with an agent. These players were cleared for having a meal with an agent. Um, what are the chances, Dr. Keller, that there could be some real change about the agent college basketball player or maybe college football player relationship? I think there's a really strong possibility that that would be a recommendation of the commission. It's certainly something that the D1 board would be very open to exploring. I think we need to be mindful of the fact that, that for a relatively small number, actually quite small number of our student athletes, uh, professional sports is a real possibility. And they may be coming from a, a, a space where they're, they're not able to get the kind of advice that they need and should have to judge what, what decisions they should make. Should they get insurance as a college player to protect potential for pro earnings? Uh, we need to be able to have a group of, of people that everybody can trust that carries out in a really transparent way conversations and guidance for those student athletes. I think that would be a tremendous step forward. We talked about the one and done. Uh, the one and done actually has not been bad for college basketball. I mean, there's been high profile uh, players that have obviously have helped the game, I mean, they're not going to lie, obviously have helped the ratings, helped the comp competition level, and they also have given back. I mentioned Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony. Uh, when these players have been on campus, you know, they actually obviously have had an impact, and then they leave, and there's an attachment. Certainly, you know, at Kentucky and Duke, which have had a lot of one and done, they've come back, and it has benefited the school. Um, you know, at, the, at that level, because it's it sort of looked at as this, you know, this awful thing, uh, what have been the benefits of having these high-profile athletes on campus, even if it's for one season? I, I think as long as it's an education, there's an education being sought after, it, it's okay. It happens in other sports, golf, tennis, mm -hmm. where we have a student athlete that will come and they're ready to go to the next level. That's fine, but once the, when they're there, we want to make sure that they're getting there, moving toward, progressing toward a Well, degree. and that safeguard was put in. I mean, yes. because it, we'll try when to. this, but yeah. no, but when it, when it first came out, guys were bolting uh, in April and, yeah. and March, and then that affected the APR. Yep. And so basically, you could get dinged from that later on. And so yeah. now these guys are at least finishing that second semester because there's collateral damage if they bolt early. Um, what kind of conversations? Have you heard, are you privy to, where there could be any kind of change, whether it's back to the old model, you could go right out of high school, or increasing it to maybe two years, I don't think it would go to three, uh, with the yeah. NBA and the Players Association, because it's their rule. That's right, and people uh, occasionally forget that. Those de decisions are up to those two entities, not, not us, of course, but you know, we've seen Adam Silver and, and Michelle Roberts both make public statements that this is, uh, it's time to look at this again. It's time to reconsider what that relationship could be. Uh, the, the biggest challenge for 
college sport, I think, is when these young men don't have a choice. Uh, if, if, they, if they make the choice, if they had an option, I can go play in the NBA now or an enhanced G League or whatever the model looks like, or I can go to college. Now, as Bernard said, they're making a decision. It's a free decision that they get to make. Um, they, they, they have to be a student. They may be there one year, two years, three years. Obviously, we'd like them there as long as possible. Um, but it's not as if they're being forced to do it. They have no choice. They're going begrudgingly into school. I mean, we've seen way too many kids go into college, come out. They weren't interested in being there. They come out, they badmouth that experience. They said how terrible the system is. Well, that young man should have had an opportunity then to make a decision to not go there if he didn't want to. If you want to, great. But if, but if you don't, you don't, you shouldn't have to. So, um, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we'll see some change there. One quick thing, and we'll wrap up this topic here. In terms of the draft, uh, there's been a lot of changes. You can now go to the combine. You yeah. can have team workouts right, and still back. return. What, do you, what would happen if, on the NCAA side, you relax the rules that if you don't get drafted late June, that you could return? What would happen, though, on the, uh, on the college basketball level if, if college coach didn't know till July 1 who he was getting back. I think it, they would put them in a state of flux saying, okay, can I get that scholarship and give it to someone else? Is that person coming back? It'd be a little bit awkward, but I think it's something that we could work through and we definitely need to study and certainly get input from our college basketball coaching community to say, okay, how could this work? Because in fairness to the young men who, are, who have that opportunity, We'd love for them to come back and get another year in, in school. No question about that. Why would we turn that down? But it does create a little bit of angst in how you manage your program. Yeah, I mean, there's two things. One, there's consequences from a decision. Yep. Mm -hmm. So if you make it, on the flip side, yep. it's a small minority of right, players. Correct. Really small number. All right, so I just want to go real quickly here. Uh, when this commission comes out, you have said before that you think there will be dramatic changes in some form, maybe as early as next season. I just want to go down the line. What do you think will happen with the landscape of college basketball next season? I, I think our awareness is going to go up. We're going to make sure the integrity of the game stays clean. Uh, I think uh, across not only coaches, administrators, institutions, we're going to make sure that our programs are running in a manner that is serving our students in, in an appropriate way. What changes, though, what will we be able to see will be different? So what I hope is that we are having some conversations about one and done, and, and in particular, better pathways for students for whom college is not part of what they want to do. They want to play professional basketball. We ought to have a way in the United States for that to happen, really. Better uh, opportunities and advice for students, so a, so a group of agents in, a, in an open and transparent way for a family to connect with an advisor to help them uh, chart their way forward. Those would be the three things I would like to see. And then I'd add to that something we haven't talked about here is one of the sources of a lot of challenges is what goes on in, in youth basketball, summer basketball, grassroots basketball, whatever we call that. We need to see a lot of changes there and I think we're likely to see the commission come back uh, and address that. And then we did talk a little bit about some changes around enforcement. We do need to find a better set of tools for dealing with these really contentious uh, cases that, that are so adversarial and, and maybe that's some kind of um, uh, system that's really quite different than what we have right now for those kind of cases. You combine all of those things and you've got a pretty big package of changes. Dr. Emmert, Dr. Kaler, Bernard Mura, thanks for this conversation on the state of the game of college basketball. I know it's a topic we're going to continue to discuss.